Welcome to the Help for Hip Dysplasia podcast. I'm your host, Laura Rotford, a physiotherapist, Pilates instructor, and fellow hippie. We're here to talk all things hip dysplasia, to build a community, to support and guide each other through the ups and the downs. If you like the podcast, please share it and rate it. It does help others to find it too. And if you have any feedback or questions, they're always welcome. Email me at laura at helpforhipdysplasia.com. That's it for now. Let's get started with the show. Welcome back to the Help for Hip Dysplasia podcast. This week we have with us Claire Rosenhead. Hi, Claire. Hi. Thank you so much for coming on and joining us today. Where are you joining us from? Salisbury down in Wiltshire. Okay, Stonehenge. So, that's what most people know it for. <laughs> fair enough. So, a lot of our listeners from um, all over the world. So, for anyone that doesn't know that area, that is with myself in the UK. Um, so, how have you been with everything that's been going on lockdown wise? Uh, I've been quite fortunate because I can do a little bit of work, but I'm a physio as well. So I'm non-clinical. So (laughs) it's very much telephone consultations. So that for my hips, that's been brilliant, but it's also allowed me the kind of the mental health of going back and having a little bit of normality. So kind of a less strenuous version of work, which has actually been quite nice and just allowed me time to focus on my rehab and just getting stronger as well and enjoy the walks and the weather. Absolutely. Well, I can definitely relate to that. It is a slower pace of work, um, but thank goodness for communication like this. So we're doing this interview over Zoom, um, a video platform that allows us to keep communication with each other. And I'm sure like lots of people around the world right now, um, we're very, very thankful for the technology that we have to allow us to stay in contact. And like you said, to allow us to still do a bit of work along the way in this slightly slower pace. So we're obviously here to talk a bit about your hip dysplasia journey today um and i know very very briefly that you had two POs in one year last last year um 2019 so let's just start back at the beginning of your hip dysplasia journey um when were you diagnosed when did you hear about it um well i was diagnosed in oh gosh this time flies so quickly october 2018 (laughs) Mm -hmm. so my journey's been i've been quite fortunate because i my journey's been quite quick compared to a lot of people. Um, I think being a physio and working in the healthcare profession, I had a bit of an idea. I had hip pain and we're all very good at ignoring it till it became a little bit too much. And it was interfering a lot with my day-to-day activity. I, was, I used to play a lot of hockey. So I just was on the hockey pitch and I couldn't even turn direction and sprint because my muscles would go into spasm. But in my head, I was like, oh, it's only something like a labral tear. So the cartilage in the hip, bit of a tear. I fell off a water ski several years ago and pulled my leg out. And I was like, oh, that must have been the the start of it. So when I saw one of my lovely consultants who then started asking me the typical hip dysplasia questions, which I was like, well, no, that's not me. I haven't got hip dysplasia. It's absolutely like... (laughs) Denial. (laughs) And then he's like, no, no, you you really do. And I was like, oh, okay. Because I've never had my hips x-rayed. Why would you? Unless... um, you have a problem with them. I looked at them and, oh yeah, that's definitely hip dysplasia. <laughs> um, so that was back in 2018. And I was still playing hockey because again, I was still in denial going, it's painful. I'll just take pain painkillers and I'm sure I'll have to stop at some point. Um, but a month later, um, all hockey stopped. And my journey from that point was actually really quick. And it's interesting because when I talk to patients and you tell them a diagnosis, their pain seems to increase. I don't know if you had that in your experience. They go, oh gosh, suddenly they're letting the pain in because I think we block it out. We're so good at just ignoring it. Yeah, absolutely. That suddenly within, I think from the October till the January, I could barely walk half an hour. I'd gone from being playing hockey to a 
probably not the best level. I was probably about 50% playing, but still doing something and running. I was doing a little bit of running and cycling and swimming. And then all that stopped. And I just couldn't even walk my dog. So I was like, mom, can you walk my dog? Um, so my consultant down in Salisbury, a lot of probably similar to a lot of people in the UK, there aren't that many consultants that do the PAO and hip specialists. Yeah. Although he was a hip specialist, he's very much um, doesn't do arthroscopies and it was all just hip replacements. So I knew that going in. So he referred me up to London to Mr. Banks, uh, who works at Guys in St. Thomas. Mm -hmm. So I eventually got my first appointment with Mr. Banks in February. I said it was my Valentine's Day treat because it was Valentine's Day. Oh, no. <laughs> 2019 so last year um and I was so so fortunate because I went in and, and we had a chat and he we'd spoken before um so I knew what was going to happen I knew I was going for a PAO um and it was my left hip was always worse than my right hip and he had a cancellation for 10 days later so oh my I was goodness. in 10 days later for my first PAO so no time to I, I knew I was having it but no time to think about it and just go and get on with it I was very, very fortunate that I kind of pre-warned work that this is what, what potentially could happen, that I'm going to have a PAO and, um, and I worked two jobs. So I was like, I don't know how quick it's going to be, but they were very, very good at letting me just go and take the, that, oper that operation date because, as you know, you could wait months for that. So I got in very, very quickly. So that's, that's so interesting then from a psychological perspective, not having any kind of warning time, really, you know, 10 days to prepare for quite a significant surgery. And um, some might say that's an understatement. Um, but looking back on it, do you feel like that was better or worse to not have the time to prepare so much? I think it was better. Yeah. The reason I know that is because I, as you mentioned earlier, I went for my second PAO, so for my right hip, in September and I'd already planned that that was roughly the time I was a bridesmaid for a very good friend's wedding so I was like I'm not having it before that I'm not being on crutches being that useless bridesmaid so it always kind of said can I have it at the end of September if I can have it that quickly and my only limitation was he didn't want it any closer than six months apart and I was like that's fine so that was about seven months and waiting for that second PAO was awful I got myself for a month I was building up into stress in my head I was just going into panic mode because partly I knew what was coming and partly yeah. I was actually having time to think, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose all my independence that I've just suddenly got back because I'm going back in for the next operation. I don't regret it. I would totally do the same thing again, but that's a personal choice because I'm very much, I just want this journey done. I know it's a very long journey, but I want the big operations done so then I can start to recover properly yeah. and kind of start to see what my new normal is, which I'm still not at. That's, and, and that's something we'll definitely come back to, the, the new normal, but I'm still so, so intrigued as to this turnaround um, so quickly with the surgery. So you went through diagnosis from 2018, you had the surgery beginning of 2019. Um, did you know when you had the surgery in February that you were going to have the surgery in September and did that affect the way that you did your rehab? I Yeah, so I... Um, I'd spoken to Mr. Banks about it on the first one and I, cause I would have had them both together. Mm. I would just, I just wanted it done. And he's like, absolutely not. And we discussed that. And I, <laughs> and I now having gone through it, I would never recommend anybody to have it both together because it's horrific. It would be horrific. Um, remind me what the question was again. Sorry. I, de I, I detoured. <laughs> <De-trapped. laughs> um, did it affect the way that you did your rehab after having one done knowing that, or did you know or not that you were going to have the next one done? So did it affect your rehab? Yeah, so it did because I was very, very careful. 
So during my left one, I didn't want to do anything that would potentially put it at risk. And I took everything slowly. So I very much was very good patient that stuck to the rules. And <laughs> I only did what to my body, what the limit was. And then as soon as I kind of got to about five months, I started then pushing things a little bit more, did a bit, I started a little bit of running, which was a little bit early. And I wouldn't have done that if I wasn't going for the next PAO so quickly, but I was so desperate to get out on, just get my trainers on and go running. that I did a bit of a couch to 5K, which took me the, basically the time till my next surgery, but it was so lovely to be out. But I was very, very careful because mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to slip. I didn't want to get a stress fracture. And they were most, the stress factor for me was my biggest concern coming off the crutches. So I stayed on my crutches. There was a potential stress factor because I was getting quite a lot of pain um, in the first eight weeks. So I did stay on the crutches for 12 weeks, I think, in total. So mm-hmm. and then I didn't fully get off of them until about 14, 15 weeks. So I, I kept myself on that and I refused to come off my crutches until I had a good gait pattern. I was like, listen to what you tell your patients. Have a good exactly. gait pattern. Get strong. But it's very hard to remember that I'm a terrible, terrible patient. And I feel sorry for anybody that's had to deal with me through this journey. I think that it, it, it can't be stated enough, the importance of getting that good technique before you get off your crutches, right? I mean, this is something I harp on about a lot. And people do get so bored of me saying it. It's not a regression to go back to your crutches or to stay on your crutches for longer than you've been told. The aim should not be how quickly can I get off them, right? It's how good can I get this technique yeah. so that it's not going to come back to bite me in the bum later on down the line. Absolutely. As soon as you get off them, you might not have developed the right technique. So those compensa- compensation strategies mm-hmm. have then, you know, wormed their way in. And then, like I said, they might just come back later on down the line in a different area, not even necessarily yeah. your hips. So it can't be stressed the importance enough of getting that good technique. So I'm so pleased that you brought that up. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I did, I suppose, for psychologically, I had two sets of crutches. So mm-hmm. one set was the hospital standard. Um, I had to put grips on because like everybody, my hands were absolutely killing. I couldn't even walk around the house kind of using putting that much weight through them. And then I had more open cuffs. So I didn't have the front cuff. So then what it does obviously teach you to suck eggs, but um, it very much gets your core more engaged. So I've definitely, I didn't, I waited till I was about 10, 12, 10, 11 weeks, I think, before I even tried those. But that for me was a really great progression because I felt myself working harder, but I still knew that I was keeping a good gait pattern. And it was just nice to kind of go away from the the lovely kind of chrome silvery ones from the hospital to kind of more, they were the ones I chose. I bought them. So they were a bit black and they just look a little bit nicer, which is so stupid to say, but it makes you feel a little bit better when you're on them. So no, I was, it was, I mean, it was great getting off two crutches. Don't get me wrong to have a free hand, to be able to carry yourself a drink from one room to another was a luxury. And (laughs) I think my mum very much appreciated me not going, mom, can I have another drink please? Yeah, I'm sure. Um, so where did you purchase that crutch from? Because I, I can imagine a lot of people listening to this will be thinking, oh my goodness, that sounds like a great idea. I wonder where I could yeah. get one. I got them online, but I can't remember the website, but I can ping it to you later on and then maybe you could add that it up to the bio. Oh yeah, I'll pop it... it onto the show notes and yeah. when this goes out, that'd be great. Thank you so much. No problem. Okay. So that was what you were doing with your left leg. So you'd had the mm-hmm. left PAO um, and you were doing all the rehab and working yourself to get stronger. Knowing mm-hmm. that you had another surgery coming up on your right, were you quite conscious of doing a lot of prehab for your right leg going in? Yep. Anything I did on the left, the right leg did as well. I just doubled the amount I did on my left. So my, my right leg still worked just as hard because I was very conscious that I wanted to get as fit as I could be 
ready for that next surgery, knowing how much it helps. And I was very deconditioned going into my first surgery because I'd had to stop so much. And I tried to do some standard glute exercises like your bridges and donkey kicks. And I'd gone so full force on it before the first surgery that I'd then give myself a bit of a strain. <laughs> oh, like, no. Right, not don't do that again. <laughs> So at least this time I could at least use, do it a bit easier and I could actually be standing up a bit more because my right leg was, ne my, my right hip was never as symptomatic. It did get very sore just before the surgery, but it wasn't actually quite as bad as I expected. I thought having to rely on my right hip during the partial weight bearing stage, it would flare up massively. And it didn't give me too many problems that I couldn't cope with. It was mm -hmm. uncomfortable, but it wasn't as bad as the left. So I was, I feel quite lucky in that respect that actually my right hip held out long enough to allow me to then kind of let the left hip re re recover well. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I say recover well, it's now not a very happy hip, but we can come on to that later. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure we'll come back to that. Okay, so when you went in then for your right here in the September of 2019, um, did you feel like your left hip had gotten back to a level of strength and independence, reliance on it enough that you felt good going into the surgery? It was a big concern of mine. It was, I wouldn't say, I'd say it was about 60% there and I'd done right. so much work on it, but I, I knew I couldn't have done any more. I was doing something almost every day, even if it was like a rest day, it was a low level, just get, keeping going. Active um, rest. Active rest, absolutely. I'm a big fan of active <laughs> rest. Um, uh, so it wasn't great, but it was, it was a lot better than it was going into the first operation. So it felt comfortable and actually it was almost pain free, which was for me really? was great, which I hadn't had for such a long time. So yeah, that, that was, that was really good going into that surgery. It was just my head that was a bit of a mess to be honest. Everything else was ready to go because <laughs> you just got the next, next lot of um, equipment that we had out for the first surgery, like my shower chair and stall and stuff like that. That was all out ready to go. So we knew what to expect. And mum and I had built up a bit of a routine of how to deal with the early days and was much smoother and so all that all that prep was in place um for mm -hmm. the second surgery and you said that your mum was there so were you living with your mum at the time well i i usually live on my own with my dog but mm -hmm. i made the decision that as soon as i had the surgery i'd move home and move back to my parents i'm lucky they're only half an hour away from where i live normally so half an hour they're more in the countryside so actually it's a much nicer location for recovery because all you see is fields and it's beautiful. So I've actually stayed here and I'm still here now because I've decided to stay with the isolation just so I could help them out. Mm. But also I'm waiting for my next surgery. Um, but no, I moved home because there was absolutely no way that I could have coped. And I am so, so thankful to my parents and my family for being there and supporting me because I, I don't know how I'd cope without them. I don't, I don't know how people do it. I genuinely don't. Not, I couldn't even get in the shower or get into bed without a bit of support. This is the one of the main things um, from this podcast that I've come to realise, and this is always people's best tip, you know, have somebody with you for support, a friend, a family member, and anybody um, that you can have for support. And you know, no one takes for granted the support that they get during this time um, because it's so crucial for the mental and the physical help. Yeah, and on. it's amazing because mum took me on trips, so I'd go, she'd take me down just to the shop and we i'll be in my wheelchair and going food shopping with the excitement of my week so i was getting out of the house <laughs> but i wouldn't have been able to do that if i had nobody there with me because there's just even from my house i live quite hilly so there's no way i, would, I could have got down the hills probably not very safely but i wouldn't have gone back up them <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so after after next set of surgery, then um, you obviously knew what you were doing. You knew the drill for the rehab. Um, was it the same the second time around, or was it different having had the first one done? It was really interesting. My body reacted very differently when I'm in pain. I go into a lot of inhibition and spasm. So this time round, and I don't know if it's because I'd had the surgery so close together, I really struggled in the inpatient side. It took mm -hmm. me five days to get out of bed because my adductors in my hip just kept going into spasm. So every time I kind of even tried to bridge the shuffle to get to the edge of the bed, they clamped up and I kept saying to them, I need something more. And they just kept giving me more opioids, which then sent me a bit loopy because that much is just a bit bonkers. Um, in the end, they gave me a drug called Baclofen. So it's a muscle relaxant. After that, it was a bit of a game changer. It was very, very painful, but I could get up. Yeah. So the pain was very different. Um, I got up very quickly on the first surgery. I found it naively quite easy. It was hard, but it was much easier than I expected. Second time around, I thought, oh yeah, okay, well, it wasn't too bad. I was up within three days, four days I'd done the stairs and I was ready to go home. But by five days, I still hadn't got out of bed. I couldn't have even be slid over to the next um, table to have an x-ray because it was just so uncomfortable. Well, uncomfortable is an understatement. I think I was screaming at that point and I had to apologize to the radiologists <laughs> that were at the hospital the next time I went back because I actually saw one of the same ones because it was just, I felt so awful because I was so not myself, but the pain was so very different. So it took me longer to get going. And then, so the initial bits of coming home were very, very difficult because there's quite a lot of stairs and um, steps down into the lounge in my parents' house. So things like that made life a lot harder because although I'd set myself up I didn't have quite the same flexibility to get up easily so I had to have somebody there just to support me because I was very worried about falling because my muscles just weren't taking it so mm -hmm. but after I got over that initial pain things seemed to get easier the right hip progressed really really nicely much nicer than eventually the left hip actually and it's the left hip that started hurting about well, it, within a couple of weeks, it was hurting the left hip. And it, I think it was the old problems, not the bony alignment, but my, I've got um, now got a cam impingement, which, as you know, my hip was in the right, in the socket. So it was never an issue. So, but now, because it's back in the socket, it's irritating me. And I've got, so I've got, I've detached the labrum. So all those things are now causing me quite a lot of problems. So my right hip isn't getting quite as strong because my left hip's just not letting it at the moment. So I just, I'm waiting for that next surgery. But unfortunately my biggest bugbear with the COVID situation is my surgery was canceled. So I'm still, right. I'm still waiting for the, the arthroscopy and the screw removal. So that was meant to be the end of March and I was so looking forward to it. I was like, I can have a summer of doing my outdoor swimming again. <laughs> but, oh, brilliant. So is that, is that something that you used to do quite a lot of outdoor swimming? Yeah, so I was really outdoor, outdoor swimming. I absolutely love, absolutely love it. And cycling, they're my two big things. And hockey was my winter sport and running was just to keep me fit so that I could do everything else, to be honest. But no, I, mm -hmm. I can't praise outdoor swimming enough. It's, it gives me the physical kind of well-being, but also the mental clarity of just being outdoors in the open. And it's amazing when you go to these, because I go to, sometimes I go to the sea, because I'm quite lucky I'm only an hour from the seaside. Um, or I just go to a lake that's an organised swim, but everybody, it's the environment that you're in. So everybody's very like-minded, everybody's lovely, in a big sweeping statement, but it's, it's a really lovely environment to be in. So yeah, I'm massively passionate about outdoor swimming and hope to do a lot more. And one day I will do the channel when I'm all fully fit <laughs> and able to. Oh, wow. I had, I've, I've trained a patient actually of mine um, who wanted to swim the channel. Um, and as you can 
possibly imagine she got lots of rotator cuff injuries along the way with the training um mm. but we got her through it and she did it and it was the most emotional thing um her name's iris and she is absolutely incredible oh, um amazing. so good luck with that like i know it's, it's such an emotional journey going through it but she just got out the other end and just cried and um, yeah like the emotion was just overwhelming so when you manage to complete that not if but when when um, it's gonna when. be the best day for you yeah um so about the swimming at the moment, you said that you're not able mm -hmm. to do the open water swimming at the moment. Um, is mm -hmm. that because of lockdown or is that because of the pain that you're getting? I haven't tried it since the last operation and I would have given it a go and I have looked, but the lakes and things are closed. So it is partly to do with the lockdown. We haven't reopened mm -hmm. around here to the ones that I'd normally go to. I'm a bit nervous about going on the beach. So I haven't tried the sea yet because I think that that would hurt my hips before I've even given the swim a go. So just the kind of getting down or into the water, I think would be a bit tricky. So yeah. it's partly that. And I was doing a bit of pool swimming before the lockdown and I was getting stronger, but it's quite amazing how your body changes because the muscles are suddenly in the right alignment. They're just, they're not really sure what they're doing. So it's taking a lot longer to get my normal fitness back because the, the muscles just need a bit of time, which is fine. It's just something that I hadn't really think, thought about. Even being a physio with my background, you don't think that it's going to happen to you. You're like, no, I'll snap back to how I was previously. It'd be absolutely fine so I mean I was I was going to ask you about this a bit later but it seems relevant now so how has it been um for you as a physio going through this knowing you know all the anatomy and knowing all you know the rehab protocols but being a patient yourself with it it's been really interesting because I actually work privately as well so it was the first time I've ever been an NHS patient I mean you know, I was in the NHS years ago so but the way that the treatment is is very very different so in some ways being a physio was helpful because I've got a lot of physio friends so one of my friends helped me out a lot and I'm eternally grateful for the amount that she's done for me and it's been a nice lifeline for me because I uh, think she did all the manual therapy that the NHS didn't don't have the time for in the nicest possible no. way they just don't have the time for it whereas we in private practice do get the luxury of it I'd say so I do yeah it was hard the first time round, it was very, very difficult. And I think it took a couple of physios before I settled on one that I felt comfortable with. And I felt that I had a bit of a respect for my role because I think they thought, oh gosh, it's just one of those patients that Googles things, even though I, I do physio as a, a living and I, I think I've got quite a good knowledge I'd like to think. Um, so that was quite tricky to get to the right personality that would work for me. And it, um, unfortunately I found a fantastic physio, which is brilliant. And a month later, she went on maternity leave, which was devastating. <laughs> but I'm hoping that she'll be back working before my next operation so I can go and see her. But it was really difficult because although I knew what to do and I tried very hard to think, what do I say to my patients? Think about alignment. Stop when you've had enough. But I'm so terrible at wanting just to get on with things and just get them done. I had to really pull myself back in. And I think the first rehab from the PAO was better because I was more patient because it was the first time that I'd been through it. Second time round, I just felt like I hadn't had a break and it was just one big continued cycle for nearly a year at this point. And I was just, I was a bit fed up and impatient. So I had to really, really pull myself back in and be very strict about how much I did, when I did it. So making sure that I didn't push myself too far, which I haven't done and I have been pleased, but it's been very hard work to stop myself from doing that. I think it must be a really difficult psychological challenge because you must just be constantly thinking, you know, well, I know that I could be doing that. And actually, if I did that and that and that and that and that, that would probably really help. But having that having that ability to pace yourself, I think, must 
must be the hardest challenge. Yeah, and I and I wanted to be, but I've always been fit and active. So not being able to do the normal level that I'd expect myself to do was a real challenge. And it took me a long time to go, it's okay to start at the beginning. It's mm -hmm. okay to not be good at these and kind of work myself back up to them. And so I had to set, I had to do stupid things like draw myself tables and stuff like that you do with children just to keep myself focused on what I was doing so yeah. that I would kind of stick to that rather than detouring, adding a weight, adding a resistance band, something silly like that, which so easily, and I could have done them absolutely, but the trouble I would have caused myself later on would have been not, it's just not worth it. Absolutely. I completely get it. And I have so much admiration for you going through that and keeping, keeping to what you would have advised other people to do. It's uh, it's, it is really challenging. Um, but yeah, absolute hats off to you for going through that process. <laughs> I would um, say I was about 80% good. I can't pretend, pretend that I was a, got a perfect angel. I was about 80% good, but I put all the strategies in place at least. <laughs> so what have what would you say that the main challenges have been going through rehabilitation of any kind um, in lockdown? I found it easier, if I'm honest, because yeah, because I've I've I um I had all the stuff at home already. So it's not as if I had to suddenly go and buy TheraBands, a gym ball, some weights. And because I, I think I'm in a fortunate position, I've got quite a lot of knowledge of exercises and I've got access to things like physio tools. So I created my, I've created myself work like um, exercise programs and I've been, I found myself really strict at keeping to them because, and I found it actually better because I haven't got the distraction in, in the nicest possible way of, of wanting to go and see my friends because I can't wanting mm -hmm. to go and do x y and z because you just can't so it made me just go well actually i've got this time to sit and do it well and I, i've found my fitness is actually getting better because i'm at home and luckily i do where i do a lot of cycling and where i do winter training i've got a turbo so i mount my bike oh, and awesome. it's been sat on there so i've been using that so it's been fantastic that i'm not i've got cleats so getting my foot, I haven't got the selective movement to get my feet very easily in and out of the cleats. So I won't go on the road, which I know we're allowed to, but I stick to the turbo trainer because I know I'm working hard on that instead. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, I have a road bike. It's a beautiful road bike and I'm so scared because I can't get my feet out and I haven't had a surgery recently. So if that <laughs> makes you feel any better. I mean, before the surgery, I'd get my foot out about hundred meters before I a, a junction so that I was ready whereas now I probably it's, it was a getting it back in that I can't get my foot back in clicked in so then mm -hmm. I end up wobbling and if you're on a busier road I just I don't trust myself to wobble into the middle of the road it's just I'm not safe no I get so, so much fear about it I've got sweaty hands actually just thinking about it I've fallen off so many times and um, the first time I got on my road bike and clipped in um, it was the first time I'd ever done any clipping it and I'm quite confident on a normal mountain bike or a hybrid bike with regular pedals but yeah. um, I was going up this hill um, and I didn't get the gear down quick enough and mm -hmm. I didn't get my foot out and it was just like shit 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 <laughs> and as, as I tumbled over and just landed on my on my hip and I was just like oh, oh no. and then yeah, I've fallen off several times since um, so I need to get my confidence up. <laughs> And they're slow motion falls as well. There's nothing you can do to I stop know. yourself, which is absolutely very frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> so I've seen on your Instagram that you've been doing um, some virtual challenges on your yes. bike, which is obviously great for your rehab, um, mm -hmm. low impact, getting you nice and strong, um, yep. and probably helping with the psychological challenge of not being able to go out so much. So yep. um, talk through some of the challenges that you've been doing online. 
So one of the first ones was to cycle uh, uh, yeah, 100 kilometers in two weeks. So mm -hmm. I did that. And luckily, my, I've got a Garmin and it connects to my, uh, my bike. So I can at least see how far I'm pedaling with most turbos you can't. So I did that. And that was all via Strava. Love Strava. I'm a bit of an addict on that. <laughs> um, and because the marathon was cancelled, I did the 2.6 challenge. So um, for those that don't know about it, it was any, any sort of exercise on Sunday, the 26th of April, if I've got my dates correct. Um, that involves two or a six, so you could do whatever you wanted. So I decided to do 26 miles. So I did 20 miles on my bike, which was the first time I'd ridden since the, either surgery, actually, for an hour. And that was painful. And I think that's definitely a limit to how much I can be on a saddle because they're not the most forgiving. And then I walked six miles, which again was the first time I'd walked six miles in about 18 months. Wow, um, that must have felt great. It was great. I mean, I didn't move for the rest of the day, but it was fantastic doing it. It was just, it was so lovely. And because we've got the dogs and the countryside, it was, it just felt like a bit of normality was back. And it, the, to be able to walk the six miles was for me a really big achievement because well, I could sign you've got another surgery coming up. Yeah. So um, unfortunately, I'm still taking quite a lot of painkillers, but I've accepted that I'll take more painkillers to allow me to do the exercise because for me, that's much more important. Um, but yeah, this walking really, really hurts me because of the impact where cycling doesn't particularly, it does hurt, but it's the, it's the right type of hurt, muscle hurt, which is fine. I'm, I'm more than happy with that. But the, the hip gets very, very sore with the impact of walking, particularly when you're off road. So to walk six miles, I mean, I haven't tried it again since, if I'm honest, and I'll probably, I can stick to about four and a half miles and that's more comfortable. So I'll probably just stick to that distance for now, but I'm over the moon that I can actually walk that far. It's nice to know that I'm a little bit not more normal and not having to feel like an 80 year old going oh well how far are we going okay I might be able to manage that and what am I doing are there for any the benches rest of the along the way so I can sit down or yes <laughs> exactly but no I did it so that that's a really massive stepping stone and I think my dog was very appreciative to have had such a good run <laughs> well so you said originally that um you're obviously struggling to to take the dog out um, mm. when you were having your first surgery before and after. Um, yep. How long was it before, I, I mean, since the first surgery, since you were able to start walking your dog again? Because that must be yeah. something Oh, I was so excited when I could take him out. His name's Bailey. I was, oh, it was just, and I think he was so appreciative that I was there. It was a really strange dynamic, actually. It was about 14 or 15 weeks, if I'm correct. And I went with my crutches. I went very, very slowly and not very you far. must have him very well lead trained oh no mum held him on the lead i, oh. I, I was a bit nervous about because he's a very he's a big dog so to hold him on the lead as well as crutches i mean he's very he's a very gentle dog but you can't predict animals or something much more exciting than me being around so when he's off the lead it was great um but now i, I it, oh gosh i can't even remember it was months it was probably about five months before i was comfortable to walk him on the lead because I just, I didn't have the strength. And if he suddenly, it was that sudden turning that would really, really hurt. Um, where this time round, I think it was nearer six months before I walked him on the lead. I'd join mum for dog walks, but I wouldn't take him on the lead. It would be mum car carrying both dogs, well, holding the leads anyway. <laughs> So one thing I did want to ask and what I ask everybody on these podcasts is what support groups or networks have you had to help you through this time? And obviously having a, the background that you do with your work, um, you've obviously known a little bit more about it than perhaps some people might have had the chance to. Um, but have you had any, um, have you used just friends and family or have you used any Facebook groups or anything like that to help you along the way? 
well my family have been absolutely amazing and I've had a selection of friends it's very interesting when you go through this the change in your friendship dynamic so mm -hmm. some friends have been absolutely phenomenal and very very understanding um, and I've used a lot of Facebook so there's a the PAA group for the UK and I've got my PAO friends that I call them that have been I've met throughout my journey. So one girl I met when I and I had surgery with her on the same day. Really, and we've been buddies ever since. And it was so lovely that you could just message somebody anything you wanted, going, "I'm having a really rubbish day. This really, really hurts," and you could rant. And it was lovely because they were like, "Yep, yeah, no, been there, going through it." And they, you could just, you, we, we used each other a lot, which was really lovely. Uh, I've met a couple of other friends that I've, I've recently met up with as well. And we've been, when I was off, well, when I was between surgeries, we met up and went for a little dog walk, which was lovely. That also had the PAO around the same time, but we'd met through the, the Facebook group because they posted something. And I think I just messaged back in a private message, just answering some of the things because I try to use my physio knowledge to help people. And I think, talking to other people but also talking to my these girls that I've made friends with and being able to support those has actually really really helped me um, as well as kind of hopefully helping them and I've been talking to Nancy who I know that you interviewed oh, previously yeah. from Miles for Hits so I've been doing a little bit of work for them so doing some of their information sheets and I plan on doing a lot more for her so that was really helpful and it's just been lovely and listening to your podcast has been brilliant because when you're going through these rubbish journeys it's so interesting hearing other people's stories how they've coped with it and you can kind of pick up some of their strategies and go okay I'm going to try that and it's it's been really really helpful other yeah, podcasts that are so non nice. non uh, hip dysplasia um, related. I've been re listening to a lot of Fern Cotton's Happy Place, oh, and really? that's been really great. One. Yeah, because I found my mental health really struggled during this journey, and I've never really struggled before, but I definitely became very low. And she does a lot of mental health stuff, and it was just really nice. And I, I'm quite nosy by nature, so it's them again talking about their life's lives. So you had Dawn French, for example, telling you all about her life and her history, and it was just fascinating that all these fa famous people have got all the same problems as normal people have which is <laughs> actually re really reassuring to listen to so all of those things combined have really helped although I did have to seek help from my GP at some points as well because I was I was really struggling and I just felt I had a grey cloud over me which is not my personality but I'm feeling much better now that I'm kind of getting back to some activity at least. Absolutely well that's incredible and and I think that's something that perhaps could be taken forwards as something you know something that we could try and get you know the consultants and the inpatient physios to try and encourage people to do is to get a PAO buddy right mm -hmm. so you know whether they can put you in touch with somebody else that's had it at the same time in that same hospital that's local mm -hmm. or whether you go on to some of the support groups and just say is there anybody in my area you know that we could meet up and have a chat I think mm -hmm. it's so powerful to have somebody going through things at the same time as you are or somebody that's had that experience just to be mm -hmm. able to go have that back and forth um, one of the other podcast um, episodes that I have um, with um, a lady called Jessica, um, she's just started up a web forum, which is kind of like a constant live chat, um, which I'll put in the show notes again today. Um, it's just for anyone to go on any time and just it's specifically for PA warriors. Um, and again, it's any time. I've seen messages on there from like one in the morning and five in the morning, 10 in the morning. Mm -hmm. So people are on there any time. Um, so just to know that there's someone that understands at any point in the day that you could go on and have a chat to, 
Um, yeah. I think it's absolutely incredible. And I'm so glad you brought up the Miles of Hip stuff. Obviously, I'm um, putting these out. Um, I've started this season specifically to coincide with Nancy's um, Hip Exposure Awareness Month. So mm-hmm. your episode will be in June um, <laughs> coming out um, just to help raise a little bit more awareness. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's absolutely incredible all the stuff that she's doing and I can't wait to be a part of it a little bit more yeah absolutely and I'm so like you so for increasing the awareness of hip dysplasia because it's so and when you told when I first told people when I first been was diagnosed that there was such a lack of understanding and they thought oh well it's just it's just kind of a bony problem and didn't really kind of understand the impact of it um, and how life-changing it and it has been life-changing for me to have had this journey and I think it's not all been bad. There's definitely silver linings from it. I think I've definitely grown as a person, but I did um, start a blog when I first started my journey because I wanted to try and, at least for my friends and family, because you're not really in the headspace to reply to text messages all the time. So I started a blog, which was my way of kind of putting out there. And I made a vow to myself that I'd be totally honest. So when I was going through a bad time, it was written that I was having a bad time rather than trying to sugarcoat things, which I think we all have a tendency to go, it's not that bad, it's okay to make other people feel better. But I was like, no, this is really rubbish. I'm having a terrible week. I can't do X, Y, and Z to try and not make people feel bad, but just to understand what you're going through. And for me, that was very therapeutic. I did a lot more in my first PAO recovery than the second one because I didn't feel I needed it quite as much. Um, maybe I should do a bit more. Not sure. I might do a bit more over the next journey, the next surgery, but we'll see how things go. But that for me was really, really helpful just to, and I, I remember, I think on one of them, I was in hospital actually, both times I was in hospital when I'd written one of the blogs and I had to read back what I'd written because I was so out of it on drugs. I couldn't even remember. I remembered I'd written on my blog, but what I'd written, I had to just make sure that it wasn't offensive to anybody or <laughs> I'd written something stupid because I genuinely had no recollection of what I'd written. I just thought that I'd, that I'd written something. Absolutely. So there's a few people that I know that have done journals and and blogs like like you've mentioned and found it exactly as you've mentioned, really therapeutic for themselves, but also for other people that have had access to this as well to be able to read. And this is, again, something that's on Nancy's website. A lot of people have shared their blogs or their patient stories um, that you can go over and have a read of. Um, But it just is so wonderful to hear that you're not alone and you've got somebody else that's going through the same thing. Absolutely. so I want to be respectful of your time today um, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll start wrapping things up. But I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of your stories with us. Um, really, really appreciate it. And we'll definitely be staying in touch if that's all right. No, that's great. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for all that you do with the blog. It's, um, sorry, the podcast is absolutely fantastic. You're so, so welcome. We'll speak soon. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again next week with another inspiring and incredible guest. See you soon.